This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton Research Podcast. I'm Deborah Yao, one of the editors here. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming two guests who will talk about an interesting piece of research on the impact of trade secrecy laws on innovation. Basically, they found out that employer-friendly trade secrecy laws do dampen innovation. My guests are Wharton Management Professor David Shu and doctoral candidate Andrea Condigiani. Their paper is called Trade Secrets and Innovation, Evidence from the Inevitable Disclosure Doctrine, and it has been accepted by the Strategic Management Journal. Congratulations, and thank you for joining our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Well, tell us about your research. What's it all about, and why did you choose the topic of trade secrecy and innovation? Sure. Uh, so both uh, both of us and also our third co-author, uh, Ivan Baranke, uh, we're very interested in uh, what drives uh, innovation activities and innovation performance. And so far, uh, much of the literature uh, in this area has focused on, on uh, patents. Patents are really a key tool that companies use to, to protect their invention and, and governments use to uh, generate and, and incentivize innovation. And... Of course, uh, uh, the literature has studied this in great detail. But on the other hand, there is another uh, important aspect of uh, IP law, which is uh, trade secrecy. And, um, of course, that may play an important role in, uh, in driving uh, innovation. And so we, we decided to look at this uh, slightly less uh, understood aspect of uh, the uh, IP environment. Yeah, I think just to build on that, what's really important to recognize is when you ask managers... How do you protect your innovative activity? How do you protect all of your investments in research and development? They will first and foremost talk about trade secrets rather than patents. The problem with trade secrets is that we can never observe them unless there's litigation or a lawsuit. Patents, on the other hand, is a very different institution. The idea is that we have a system, much like the rest of the world, in which we give incentives for inventors to disclose their ideas. In exchange, we give them a monopoly for, in the United States, 20 years from the time that they disclose their invention. So in the face of this mismatch in observability, patents we observe all the time, researchers can observe them and study them, trade secrets, very important in practice, but hard to study because they're secret, we decided to uh, look at the impact of a shift in the legal regime associated with trade secrecy law and how that might affect something that we can actually observe and study, which is the impact on inventive activity patenting. And so it's uh, the situation in which ordinarily we would not be able to observe, uh, but we find some very surprising results uh, with our study. Well. Let's first define what you mean by trade secrets. And I understand that the legal definition has changed over time. Can you get into that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so the notion of trade secrecy has evolved a little bit. Uh, maybe the one that we have right now and that is uh, um, somewhat um, established and used at the moment is, is the notion of uh, 
suggested by the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, uh, which was introduced in uh, 1979 and then over time has been um, adopted by uh, many uh, uh, states uh, in the U.S. And based on that, uh, a trade secret is a piece of information. So basically things like formulas, patterns, uh, programs, devices, and so on, that has two uh, aspects. One, it derives economic value, actual or potential, from uh, not being known to outsiders. And, and second, um, is essentially, you know, it is the subject of efforts that are reasonable under the circumstances to maintain its secrecy. Uh, this is the legal definition that, that we have right now. Now, there is a set of, uh, of uh, legal tools that protect trade secrecy, and we look, you know, in the study, we look at one specific uh, tool, which is the inevitable disclosure uh, doctrine. And that's essentially the idea that um, when you move from company A to company B, even if you don't want to, just by doing the work required at company B, you might disclose some important information about company A. And, uh, and you know, starting from a famous case um, in 1995 uh, in Illinois, the PepsiCo versus uh, Redmond uh, case, many states have started to adopt some kind of protection uh, trying to uh, avoid specifically this, uh, this situation. And this is sort of the empirical setting that we use uh, in our study. I think study. That's, that's right. So going back to the definition of trade secrets, very broad as compared to patents, these are things like your customer lists, the way you go about your business. And so in the popular press, we often think about things like Kentucky Fried Chicken, the secret sauce. That is actually protected by trade secrecy. And the nice aspect of trade secrecy is it is secret as long as you can keep it secret. Now, that doesn't prevent others or competitors trying to discover your trade secrets. If you accidentally disclose it or if your competitor's backward engineer that is fine. But if your competitors discover it through illegal means, et cetera, that is not fine. And that's why, where we have the legal system come in. It's also very important uh, to recognize – and that, by the way, is very different from the way the standards associated with formal patent protection, which itself is a much more narrow uh, test in terms of what's required to receive a patent – now, what's also very important about this particular legal doctrine that we examine is that uh, because trade secrets are adjudicated at the state level, not at the federal level, states have independence in the way that they adopt this particular doctrine or any trade secret law. And we actually exploit that fact because different states – come in with their adoption or rejection of this inevitable disclosure doctrine. And Andrea described that well. Just to refresh, the inevitable disclosure doctrine basically says because you as an individual cannot forget your experience or what you know from one employer, even if you don't have a non-compete clause or any other contractual um, remedy in place that will prevent you from disclosing, the, this inevitable disclosure doctrine essentially says, I'm going to prevent you from moving to company B if I'm at company A because you will inevitably disclose our trade secrets. And that's not for all time, but that is for a, a fixed period of time in a domain of knowledge. And the upshot of this for employers 
is that if this legal doctrine is in effect in your particular state, that gives a little bit more rights to employers, right? They can say, no, you cannot move, and I'm going to invoke courts to prevent you from moving. And so that is quite a distinct uh, legal doctrine that we actually end up exploiting to understand this relationship. What happens when trade secrecy protection is more employer-friendly and less employee-friendly? What happens to the incentives and innovative profile of technical staff who live under these different regimes? That's a that's a great point. Um, so what did you find out and how does the, do these types of secrecy laws af- affect innovation? Uh, so basically the, the, the question, as David just explained, um, that we try to address here is how the uh, taking place of the inevitable disclosure doctrine, the adoption uh, across states and over time of this doctrine affects um, inventors' uh, innovative activity in terms of uh, uh, patents. And, uh, you know, before... Before jumping to the results, you know, we didn't have a clear, uh, you know, there is there is a little bit of an ambiguous uh, theoretical uh, prediction uh, for what would happen. A set of theories uh, would suggest that uh, because companies uh, after uh, IDD are less likely to lose their employees, they might be investing more on them, and that should lead to uh, more innovation. Same time, other theories uh, would suggest the opposite effect. Um, a big uh, sort of a big explanation for innovation that we have in the literature is this idea of uh, recombination of ideas, and and recombination happens if people are able to move around. So if people are not able to move around, there is less recombination and so uh, less innovation. So so that would would suggest a negative uh, relationship. Then there is another theory which we happen to to find support for, which is uh, this idea of uh, labor market signaling. If uh, people are not able to uh, move within their domain, they might want to try to, to uh, you know, direct their effort into activities that are a little different from their uh, domain so that they might signal their performance to, to companies in other domains to which they can move a little more easily. Um, and and this idea uh, also would suggest a negative effect because um, essentially there would be this change in the incentive structure of, of the inventors that might lead to less innovation. So when we go to the data, what we find uh, is that overall IDD leads to uh, substantially less um, innovation, uh, and that's the main result. And then when we try to understand what drives that, we find some evidence uh, regarding the uh, labor market signaling approach. And so it's, it does seem that inventors change their incentives, and by doing that, uh, produce less innovation. Andrea uh, really summarized the results nicely, but I want to just reinforce a few of the ideas. Remember the IDD, the Inevitable Disclosure Doctrine, when it is in effect, gives more rights to employers. So you as the employee may want to move to to another employer, but with this doctrine in place, that's going to give more rights for the employer to say no right, or have some legal recourse to prevent you from moving. Under that type of legal regime, because you're more likely as the employee to stick around, the employer may say, look, I know you're not going to be 
I know you're going to be sticking around more. Let me invest more in you. Under that regime, you might think, expect, theoretically, that's, that's going to lead to more innovative activity. We don't find support for that explanation. There's theory that suggests the opposite prediction that says if you give more rights to the employers, that's going to dampen innovation. Why? Because now, because innovation requires individuals to circulate their ideas, to recombine those ideas, to the extent that that is dampened, you may not have as much innovative output. Okay, so that would be one explanation for, for finding the negative result. We find the negative result, but we don't find uh, that that is the root cause. Instead, what we find is that now that the employer has more rights to stop you as the employee from moving around in the labor market, that may give you, you as the employee less incentive to, uh, because you're more beholden. You can't use the labor market to get a better deal on the inside uh, uh, for yourself. Think about your own behavior when uh, you try to negotiate a better employment terms. You might say, look, you guys are not valuing me enough. Look at what uh, the outside labor market, they're saying that I'm worth so much and they're willing to give me this better deal. Suppose that channel is shut down and you know that you're going to be more beholden to your current employer, you may be discouraged. You may say, well, you know, I'm not going to try as hard because I'm just, I can't activate that external labor market for my benefit, and so therefore I'm going to put less effort in. And this is the, the explanation or the mechanism that we find support for in our empirical work, not just that when you allocate more rights to employers that that leads to at the technical staff level, a diminished innovation outcome. But we find further evidence the reason for that negative outcome is because these employees are not able to, or we find evidence consistent with this explanation that these employee, employees are not able to activate the external labor market to get a better deal for themselves. So given that, those are actually very interesting uh, conclusions. But given that, what are some of the practical implications of your research? How can people use what you've found uh, to make actually a positive change that will not dampen innovation? Well, um, you know, this is a very interesting question. And in principle, there could be a set of different implications. I would uh, just make a couple points. So in principle... Uh, companies might prefer a regime or a situation where they can keep their talent uh, more easily. But at the same time, we find these results that suggest that their human capital uh, becomes a little less productive in terms of innovation in this uh, setting. And so in some sense, while companies may prefer this uh, setting, they, uh, you know, this could backfire uh, in terms of less innovation. And so this is something that companies might want to keep in mind in terms of uh, location choice, uh, for example, or more broadly in terms of, of uh, deciding their broader strategy. Um, obviously, this would also have implications for policy because um, policy is generally uh, concerned uh, about uh, driving innovation. Uh, and so while lawmakers in general, or while the system might, might try to protect companies uh, in the sense uh, they might, you know, they need to be aware that this way they're also hurting their uh, innovation uh, performance. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very paradoxical, right, in that the first instinct for companies and employers is let's keep our employees under a tight, tight wrap. And that is going to hopefully lead to better outcomes for the company. But one big insight of our research that we couldn't have predicted ex ante is that paradoxically, in situations in which you allocate more rights to the employer to rein in the labor market mobility of their technical staff, that actually backfires. And I think this is played out, this I think is consistent with the experience of states like California versus Massachusetts. And there was a very famous early study that tried to compare Silicon Valley in California versus Route 128 in Boston. And the idea was that, okay, there's both, in both locations, there's great universities, great legal staff, or great scientific staff in both areas. How come the disparity in the development of these entrepreneurial ecosystems in that California takes off, you know, it used to be a apple orchard there in um, Silicon Valley. Now, of course, that's radically changed. In Boston and the greater Boston area, you've got great human capital, great universities, and good companies, but why the, the divergence in performance? And one legal infrastructure explanation for that divergence is because in California, you had a situation in which non-compete clauses were not really enforced. And so the employees could really circulate around. They could find the best match. They could use uh, competing offers to really find the best uh, employment uh, situation for themselves. And that, that kind of ecosystem really promotes innovation. What we're finding is a, a bit of a parallel. The inevitable disclosure doctrine, while it is a little bit of a, uh, you know, it's not as much in the popular press as non-compete clauses, but what's very interesting about this legal clause is that even if you don't have a non-compete or any other contractual agreement in place between the employer and the employee, this is a doctrine that can, as a legal remedy, prevent employees from circulating around. And so this actually does resonate with that earlier literature. And I think the implications for not only uh, companies and private managers as well as perhaps policymakers is that this is not something that you can easily architect. And you, what, what we have to do probably is to balance these interests between the employees and the employers because innovative uh, economies, it's a very complicated thing. But what we put our finger on in the study is a very um, interesting empirical context in which we're able to really pinpoint behavior in a very general sense uh, in, the, in our empirical methodology, what is happening, and probably more importantly, try to isolate the mechanism that leads to that result. That's a, that's a great summary. Um, many cities are trying to be the next Silicon Valley uh, with varying degrees of success, but I don't think anybody even comes close. Um, so for uh, policymakers out there, this might be outside the, the realm of your research. What are some advice or steps you can tell them about to maybe get a step closer to becoming the next Silicon Valley? Well, you know, just based on, on 
uh, what David discussed, you know, one way to go would be to try to to balance this uh, situation a little better in terms of, of how high uh, it is to, you know, how uh, high the cost of, of moving across companies uh, is. And so the most direct implication would be uh, trying to um, manage the legal tools uh, in place uh, in a way that keeps that cost uh, low enough, similarly to the California situation. But of course, same time that creates other kinds of uh, um, imbalances. And so, so the overall situation is probably a little more complex. In terms of if you thought about what is necessary, what is sufficient for an innovative economy, this is our paper is meant for a academic audience, but I, I think that we ha- are able to put our finger in a very well-controlled setting to assemble one piece of that broader, really trillion-dollar question because everyone would like a very innovative economy, right? And so what we are able to do is to th- – there's so many different moving pieces usually when it comes to how do you architect an innovative economy – Instead, what we're trying to instead of trying to tackle all those different jumble of variables that could lead to an output ultimately of innovation, we try to hold everything constant except for one thing. The one thing that we really try to isolate is the incentives or the the allocation of rights, legal rights, in this tussle between employers and employees. Now. It's likely that in order to become an innovative economy, you have to have all those other preconditions, right? Like we talked about Silicon Valley versus Route 128. If you didn't have great human capital, if you didn't have great universities, if you didn't have great science, if you didn't have great companies there that could train people, if you didn't have great venture capitalists and investors, right? So all these things come in, and we're still uh, really in, in our scholarship work trying to understand this really huge question of what is necessary, what is sufficient, what if you took out one factor, would that, how important is that one factor? And so I don't want to try to pretend that our, our, our um, academic study here tr- solves all those things. Instead, our, you know, we're playing the long game in academia. We're trying to be very rigorous about our approach to nailing one puzzle piece, and hopefully that can be informative to policymakers and to company managers. But I think that's actually a good way to transition to probably the next question that you might think about asking it, which is, where do we go from here? So let me preview a little bit where I think uh, the literature could go from here. And it relates to this broader question of what is necessary, what is sufficient for innovation, and I think that there's been a lot of work that has tried to understand, you know, what are the human capital requirements? What are the financial capital requirements by geography to really make our region, our city, our zip code highly innovative? And I think that the field in general is trying to move beyond just regional outcomes to really isolate down to the level that I have in mind in terms of my own uh, future research. What if, for example, and Andrea has been part of this, what happens if two research teams living in different locations 
actually come up with the same scientific discovery, what is the likelihood that scientific team A tries to commercialize their discovery while scientific team B, who came up with the exact same discovery, did not? And so through this new research, we're trying to localize the necessary versus sufficient conditions that are necessary to translate scientific advance to commercial outcomes that can benefit both companies and society. So David mentioned uh, sort of an avenue that comes out of this of this work, and and clearly uh, there's a lot uh, a lot to be uh, studied and, and done. So this is this is very exciting. I'll quickly mention another avenue that I'm really interested in, which is um, looking into this idea of uh, of mobility. And so what trade secrecy and, and specifically IDD does is essentially making mobility harder, and that's one way through which, uh, you know, it's essentially one cost uh, to mobility. There is another uh, stream of work that looks at how uh, essentially uh, transportation costs affect um, affect mobility and so innovation. And so, uh, you know, one one um, direction I've been thinking about is, is trying to uh, put these two into the same picture, uh, trying to think about what we could think as, as local mobility and so legal tools versus... Uh, you know, distant mobility uh, in terms of uh, the structure of, of uh, you know, the infrastructure and the transportation costs and so on. And how do these uh, costs to mobility affect jointly uh, the innovation performance of uh, cities, companies, and, and uh, economies? Well, you all have to keep us posted. So we'll keep it right there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find more insights from Knowledge at Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes, and we welcome your reviews. Thank you for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.